It is well decided, and we agree, that students do not shed their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse door. However, it is equally well decided that those constitutional rights will be administered in a way that is sensitive to the school environment. Hello to our listeners, I'm Elise Spenner. Welcome to the High School SCOTUS podcast, where we talk about how the words of the Constitution and the decisions of the Supreme Court play out behind the schoolhouse gate. This lesson will have two parts. We'll start by discussing Wisconsin versus Yoder, a landmark Supreme Court case that Amish students could be excused from compulsory education laws given their right to free exercise of religion, then move on to more modern cases about religious expression in schools. Can school clubs talk about religion? Can private Christian organizations hold their after-school meetings on campus? And then I'll zoom even further forward to current religious tensions at the Supreme Court for a conversation with Heather Weaver, a senior staff attorney at the ACLU's program on freedom of religion and belief. But before we start, here's the word of the day. Incorporation. Incorporation of the Bill of Rights to the states through the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. The Bill of Rights was traditionally thought to restrain the power of the federal government and apply only to federal courts. However, the 14th Amendment's protection of a person's liberty from state intrusion gave rise to questions about how far liberty could be extended the Supreme Court began to engage in selective incorporation, finding that the Due Process Clause's liberty protection meant that fundamental rights, implicit in the concept of ordered liberty, would also apply to state governments. So far, the Supreme Court has fully incorporated the First, Second, Fourth, and Eighth Amendments. The Fifth and Sixth Amendments are partially incorporated, while the Third and Seventh Amendments have not been incorporated. Basically, This means that these amendments, the incorporated ones, are now rights that citizens are consistently guaranteed, not just limits on the power of the federal government. But let's move on from that and talk about Wisconsin versus Yoder. We're zooming back in time a bit. Wisconsin's compulsory attendance law required that all students attend private or public school until the age of 18. But in line with their beliefs and way of life, members of the Amish religion withdrew their students from school after eighth grade but continued informal vocational education that prepared them for rural Amish living. Why? Old order Amish communities, which the students were from, requires that members pursue farming and live in harmony with nature and the soil. By attending secondary school, Amish children were exposed to a world that emphasizes intellectual, scientific, and competitive achievements, contradicting their religious values of living a life of goodness. And in the schoolhouse, they missed out on the chance to learn that physical, emotional, and religious skills needed as an adult in the Amish community. So what did everyone at the court agree on? Well, they agreed that the attendance law inherently impinged on the free religious exercise of the Amish children. The Amish parents wanted their children not to go to school because of religious reasons. The attendance laws contradicted that. So the Amish could claim that their First Amendment rights had been violated. However, the trial and circuit court found that nevertheless, compulsory education laws were legitimate exercise of government power. Remember our word of the day from episode 3? Strict scrutiny? Well, the trial and circuit court found that the law satisfied strict scrutiny, i.e. that the compulsory education laws, their value, were worth any impingement on free religious exercise. 
Now, the Wisconsin Supreme Court and the United States Supreme Court both disagreed. They found instead that free exercise rights trumped the state interest in maintaining their educational system. Reminiscent of their opinion in Barnett, the Supreme Court declared that the public school was, in fact, not omnipotent. The state might have a very strong interest in universal education, but that interest can still be balanced against fundamental rights. The government doesn't just get a blank check and carte blanche to do whatever it wants when it comes to educating students. Now, in reaching this decision, the court dove way deep into the history and tradition of Amish religion to figure out if something that aligned only with their way of life or if it was a consequence of their religious beliefs and practices. Now, the court found that the two were really just the same thing. The Amish way of life couldn't be separated from their faith. Thus, the court concluded that enforcing compulsory education would gravely endanger, if not destroy, the free exercise of respondents' religious beliefs. Interestingly, the court defended their conclusion by describing the Amish as having a long history as a successful and self-sufficient segment of American society. But of course, this gives more legitimacy to their request to be exempt from compulsory education, and it makes me wonder whether the court would rule the same way if a less identifiable and more unpopular religion argued the same case. And I'm also curious as to whether the court's ruling in Employment Division v. Smith would seem to contradict Yoder. Now, Smith found that if a law is neutral, generally applicable, and does not target religious practices, it can't violate free exercise. Yoder, it seems, contradicts that very notion, as it demands that Amish students be exempt from what is a general and neutral law, compulsory education. But Yoder was decided in 1971. Let's jump forward 19 years to a case with a bit more relevance for the general student population. Now in the modern day, and I can speak to this all too well, the pressure to pile on the extracurricular activities can seem enormous. Play that sport, start that organization, volunteer for that charity, and join that club. High school is a time to find yourself, your opinions, your perspectives, your sense of self, your future. And clubs are a huge part of that as students dabble in hobbies, passions, and possible career paths. But let's get focused. To start a club, at my school and many other schools, you can't just be interested in something. You also need the backing of a faculty advisor and the support of three other students willing to be in your cabinet. Now in 1990, the after-school Christian club at Westside High School was banned by the school administration before it even began, for two reasons. A, the students lacked a faculty sponsor, and B, a religious club would violate the establishment clause, the school concluded. When the school board defended the decision of the administration, Board of Education Westside Community Schools versus Mergens was born. Now the club came all the way to the Supreme Court. Honestly, that would make a great college application essay. They challenged my club at the Supreme Court, and we won. Anyway, back to it. The Establishment Clause reasoning of the administration and school district was pretty clearly at odds with the Equal Access Act, a law requiring that schools who permit student interest clubs allow equal access to student groups that wish to share views or content, religious, political, or philosophical messages. Thus, the Supreme Court considered whether the district could prohibit the Christian club, but also inherently whether the Equal Access Act was constitutional or was a violation of the separation between church and state. The school, through the Equal Access Act, the government was requiring that the school endorse religion. Or was it not? That's the question. According to the opinion by Justice O'Connor, Westside High School succeeded in creating a limited open forum with its student interest clubs. They were not related to curriculum or any regularly offered course, and participation was not required nor guaranteed extra credit. Justice O'Connor's example was Subsurfers, a scuba diving club. 
Now, O'Connor drew a line between permitting and endorsing speech. As we mentioned in the last episode, playing a prayer over the loudspeaker may make a high school student think that the school is endorsing religion. But O'Connor assumed that high school students were mature enough, mm, I'm not sure about that, to tell the difference between a school that permits all variety of clubs on a non-discriminatory basis, as this one did, and those that take advantage of their government platform to coerce or endorse. Furthermore, the school district avoided holding meetings during instructional time. Basically, the club didn't become a mandatory thing as part of formal classroom activities. So because the club, through the Equal Access Act, was totally separate from the classroom and from the school, the Equal Access Act allows students to express their opinions without becoming something that could violate the Establishment Clause. Interestingly, Justices Marshall and Brennan were worried about giving the Christian Club an absolute affirmative. While the Equal Access Act might be fine on the surface, it was important to consider the effects of the policy in practice. Because Westside doesn't actually allow all clubs to participate in the public forum, limiting those with certain controversial viewpoints, as a result, those that it chooses to include receive subtle endorsement. And that's a problem. A similar case, Good News Club versus Milford Central School, was decided in 2001. All this case is about the Good News Club, it's not actually about a student-led club. It's about a private Christian organization that wished to use elementary school facilities for weekly after-school meetings, Bible lessons, scripture, praying, and singing songs. The equivalent, in the school's mind, of religious worship that violated their policy behind who can use school facilities. The district and circuit court said it was okay for the school to ban the religious group. The school opened a limited public forum to outside speech, but had the ability to exclude groups if they did so on a consistent basis. Excluding religious activities specifically is fine if the school wishes to do so to prevent establishment entanglement, the district and circuit court said. The school consistently denied access to groups providing religious instruction, and there was no reason why it couldn't continue to do so. The question, thus, was whether Good News Club was engaging in religious worship or simply teaching from a religious perspective, in whether, if it was only teaching morals and values, the school violated the Constitution by excluding the group. According to Justice Thomas, the club simply used Christianity as a tool or a certain viewpoint from which to advance morals and character, just as other associations may rely on teamwork, patriotism, or loyalty to do the same thing. Consider the Boy Scouts. If the school is okay with other groups teaching moral values, Good News Club should be able to do the same. Justice Thomas chastised the lower courts for apparently concluding that any time religious instruction and prayer are used to discuss morals and character, the discussion is simply not a pure discussion of those issues. Justice Thomas determined that excluding a group solely because of its religious perspective, as opposed to religious worship, was clearly viewpoint discrimination. A similar case, Lamb's Chapel, informed the decision. In Lamb's Chapel, a group wanted to present Christian films to teach family values. Prohibiting the group from doing so, the court found, was unconstitutional. And so the Establishment Clause wasn't even relevant. Who would think that a meeting taking place after school hours, without the sponsorship of the school, was endorsed by them? Same thing that Justice O'Connor mentioned in Mergens. And while elementary school children might feel coerced to join something happening at their school, their parents still have final say over whether they attend. Remember, these are kids between ages 5 and 10, just as Thomas said. They're not making decisions for themselves. Their parents are. And so there's no reason why we should think that an elementary school kid would find themselves coerced into a religious practice they didn't want to be in because of the school. 
But Justice Stephen distinguished the religious speech of Good News Club, not as speech about a particular topic from a religious point of view, but speech where the main goal is to proselytize or convince people to believe in a certain faith. The school's policy created a similar distinction, Stephen said, allowing the first and excluding the second, and this was constitutional. Justice Stevens wrote something powerful about the unique challenge presented by constitutional questions inside the high school, and I think this is something that Hannah and I really try to get at with the podcast. He said, The need to decide whether to risk treating students as adults too soon, or alternatively, to risk treating them as children too long, is an enduring problem for all educators. And as well, Hannah and I think, for all judges, and for all constitutional questions, how do we ensure that children are guaranteed their rights while still ensure that they have a quality school experience and are educated? High school students are inherently on the precipice of becoming adults, but yet they are also just out of middle school, still receiving instruction from a teacher, and stuck in a school building under the rules of a school for seven hours a day, and for good reason. In finding in both Mergen's and Good News Club that the school could not prohibit student clubs or after-school activities with religious activities, the court favored religious exercise over establishment clause concerns related to perceived endorsement or sponsorship. Instead, the court argued that the principle of neutrality required that groups be treated the same regardless of their religious viewpoint. Now, let's turn to our conversation with Heather Weaver of the ACLU for insight into historic and current clashes between free exercise and the Establishment Clause. I'm so grateful to be here today with Heather Weaver. She's the senior staff attorney for ACLU's program on freedom of religion and belief, which means she deals with everything that relates to religion and religious conflict and religious rights at the ACLU. We are so grateful to have Heather here today. Thank you so much for doing this. Hi, Elise. Thank you for uh, hosting me on the podcast today. I'm very excited to be here. So, Heather, just to let our listeners get to know you, what were you up to in high school? We're high school students. <laughs> Who were you when you were like 15, 16, 17? Well, if it gives you, it might give you an idea of who I was to say that I was elected the student representative to the school board in our high school. So I was pretty active with various advocacy issues at the time. I also was a editor. It's been a long time, but I think I was the editorial editor or maybe I was the news editor. I don't, I think the editorial editor of our high school newspaper. So I was really into first amendment issues even back then and thought at some point, maybe I might even go into journalism back when I was in high school. Who were you in high school? Were you the student that was advocating for more freedoms than you were being given or were you doing what the administration and the board asked you to do? Oh, I'd say I mix. I definitely, as a student representative to the school board, I was advocating for various policies that I thought were important for students. I was advocating against some proposals at the time that I come up to require a school dress code, actually a school uniform, which is much more common now, I think, in public schools, but at least back then it really wasn't. And I advocated, of course, against that proposal. And that wasn't passed uh, when I was in high school. I think it may have been passed at my high school since then, it's been quite a, a long time since I've been back there. So I would say it's, it was a mix of things. I was also in a number of other activities, marching band, and you know, just involved in a lot of different school communities. So I, I wasn't somebody who necessarily, I would say, would push the envelope too far, but I was willing to stand up to authority figures in, in a number of contexts. 
it's interesting to see that such strong continuity between what you did in high school and what you do now. And I think we see that with a lot of people that we talk to on high school SCOTUS. And it's kind of interesting. It's like you have all these lawyers that almost all the time do debate or mock trial in some form or some student advocacy. And you are the case example of that. Yeah. And I actually didn't know at the time that um, I would go into law school or I would go to become a lawyer. But one of the things in high school that was super influential for me was to take a class on constitutional law, or it might've been the Bill of Rights, I forget. But um, as a senior, I took that. And that really started to really get me thinking more about that type of direction. So when we do think about the religious clauses of the First Amendment and how they interact with students' rights at school, what part of these clauses is it crucial that we focus on? Well, I mean, the, the religion clauses of the First Amendment have two parts. There's the free exercise clause and there's the establishment clause. They're both pretty generic in terms of their wording if you actually look at what they say. The question is, is then how do you interpret those in the public schools? And for that, we have to look at the judicial opinions and oftentimes the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court has at least early on in, it, in its jurisprudence relating to public schools. And I do want to emphasize that we're talking about public schools here, not private schools. You know, the religion clauses don't come up very much in the private school context. Sometimes they do in terms of hiring, like what kind of religious, how, who can a religious school hire? Who can they, are they allowed to discriminate and things like that. But in terms of students' rights, we're talking about the public school context here. And so we're looking at these judicial opinions and early on in the court's jurisprudence in the 60s, the court was really protective of the religious freedom rights of students to not be subjected to school-sponsored religion, school-sponsored prayer. The court was very concerned about ensuring that students and their families have the space for themselves to determine if they want to worship, how they want to worship, how they want to pray, and not having schools, public school officials, government officials, imposing that on them. As we've gone over the years, the courts have generally remained very strong in terms of protecting students in that way. We are seeing some chipping away of that in, in recent years, but as a general matter, the public school context has been one of the strongest contexts for the protection of separation of church and state and ensuring that you know, school officials and government officials are not imposing religion on students. Now, there's also some would say the flip side of that. I, I think these two things work hand in hand, the, the right of religious exercise in schools. So school officials can't impose prayer on students. They can't participate in these activities with students, but certainly it's always been understood that students can engage in prayer, you know, on their own or, you know, in groups or however they want, want to um, do so, and that that's a protected right. And that hasn't actually come up quite as much in the jurisprudence in the courts um, because it's, it's not very often that schools actually violate that right. But that's an important piece of it too, is, is to remember that even though, and my advocacy work has been largely focused on ensuring that schools are respecting the rights of students to choose for themselves what to believe, how to practice their faith, if any, you know, respecting the separation of church and state. But it's important to remember, too, that students have broad free exercise rights. And so when that comes up, I, we do try to defend those rights as well. I want to ask quickly, you talked about separation of church and state and the state shouldn't be sponsoring certain religious practices. But I want to talk about one free exercise question that we talked about, and that was Wisconsin versus Yoder. And I thought that was an interesting case because we've seen this decision, Employment Division versus Smith, that seems to say these generally neutral and applicable laws don't need to have religious exemptions. But then you have this compulsory education law, and I know I'm getting a little technical here, that said, yeah. well, you can get out of it because your religion says that you're educated at home and after eighth grade. 
or that social education is more important than this one that the state provides. So why was that decided the way it was? Yeah, so that case is a little bit outside of the context of what I was just talking about, right? That case was about whether or not, Yoder is about whether or not at the time in the 1970s, the Amish had to send their children to school beyond the eighth grade. It was their religious belief that, you know, they, that, that there was no need to do that and that they would educate children sort of in their ways um, past eighth grade and in, in agriculture and that actually sending them to school would sort of inculcate in them values and beliefs that were um, in conflict with the Amish faith. Okay. And so, as you mentioned, there's compulsory education laws that say students have to go to school up through high school. And so the Amish plaintiffs in that case sued to say, it's our free exercise right not to send our children to school beyond this time period. And as you know, the court said, look, the state doesn't really have, in this particular case, the state doesn't have a compelling interest in enforcing these Amish children to go to school beyond the eighth grade. And the court was really relying on various aspects of the Amish faith, the fact that many Amish children stay within this very insular community there, you know, in terms of the need for their education beyond the eighth grade, it's not as great. It's not, to, they don't need that to the same extent that other um, children may need that. Also, the fact that there, you know, there is sort of some sort of educational process in place for these children in terms of vocational training and, and things of that nature. And so the court said there's no compelling interest in doing and requiring it in this case. As you point out, there's a case from 1990 that says, look, this is, if there's a neutral law, there doesn't have to be a religious exception to it. That's called Employment Division v. Smith. Before Employment Division v. Smith, there was a whole body of case law that actually says, if there's a law or a government action or a policy that substantially burdens religious exercise, then the government has to meet a higher standard or to show that they can impose that on, on the individual. So in this case, their Amish were saying this substantially burdens our religious exercise. And the court said, we agree. And so the government has to show like a really, really strong interest in applying this law to the Amish plaintiffs in this case. And they ultimately concluded that the government hadn't shown that. When you move forward to 1990 and Employment Division v. Smith, that was a huge sea change in the law. Before that, they required the government to meet a very high standard in denying such an exemption. And in, in Employment Division v. Smith, basically the court said, as long as there's you know, a rational basis or a legitimate reason for um, this neutral rule, there's no need to provide a religious exemption. And as you probably have talked about on this podcast, there is a movement to overturn or overrule the Smith case and return to some standard of heightened scrutiny that um, was applied before Smith. So from the beginning of the court's delving into the religion clauses till 1990. Some people want to return to that time period where it's easier to get a, a religious exemption or a religious accommodation under the law. Okay, so from what I'm hearing, Yoder was kind of originally a very focused case that wasn't going to apply to many other situations because it's such a specific circumstance with Amish students. But then also things have kind of totally changed with Smith and also now the court isn't super sympathetic to Smith, so maybe that would change how they'd rule in a similar case to Yoder. Well, if, if Smith had been in place at the time that the Yoder case was brought, there would have been no claim, really, for the Amish plaintiffs in that case, right? Because it's a neutral rule, as you point out. And there's a reasonable reason for that. There's a reasonable objective for that rule. It's that the state has you know, an interest in ensuring that children are educated up to a certain period. And so there wouldn't have been 
but if the court had analyzed it under Smith, there wouldn't have been a religious exemption. Today, if this case came, it's, this case is unlikely to come up. Something like this particular case is unlikely to come up because as the court even noted, many states already work with Amish communities to ensure that they can respect their faith and children are still educated. But in any event, if something like this were to come up today, the court would have to either would have to probably overrule Smith if it wanted to rule in favor of the Amish plaintiffs. I'm so, using plaintiffs to, instead of petitioners. I don't know how you guys are talking about these cases, but you know, oftentimes the plaintiffs in these cases are the um, petitioners, the Supreme Court, not always, but. Right. That's totally fine. I feel like plaintiff and petitioners are pretty interchangeable most of the time, but we also talked about two cases concerning the establishment clause and student activity. And I, I want to talk about those briefly because it kind of gets to more what you were talking about. What line would you say, just more generally, the court has drawn for protecting students and their religious beliefs and protecting teachers and protecting everyone, but also preventing some sort of establishment of religion in schools or the appearance of religious establishment in schools? My answer to this question could change uh, in just a few months, as you probably know, there's a case pending at the Supreme Court involving a teacher, a public school coach who wants to be able to pray with his students um, at the 50 yard line. He's making a free exercise claim and a free speech claim. But up until now, what I would, up until, who knows what's going to happen when that decision comes out. But one of the core rules that the, that the courts have, have imposed in this area is to say, when it comes to staff, at least, and, and public school employees, they can't sponsor or participate in or lead religious activity with students. They also can't um, sort of impose religious views or proselytizing on, stu uh, um, it, on students when they're acting in their official capacities, meaning when they're acting as the coach, when they're acting as the teacher, when they're in the classroom, when they're on the field, things like that. So that's been one rule to protect students. Another rule that has, it's, it's arguable about whether this protects students, but some of the cases that the court has expressed a desire to protect students free exercise rights include the Mergen's case. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly, actually, but I have no idea. Yeah, I'm not sure. That's a good question. I'm, I say Mergen's, but you okay. can say Mergen's. But that case, that wasn't even a constitutional case. It was about a statute involving the Equal Access Act and whether or not under that act, that federal statute, religious clubs could meet at school or could be, not just meet at school, but whether or not a school has to recognize them as official clubs. And the court there said, basically, yes, if you have any other clubs, if you have a chess club, if you have a, I forget, there's like a, I think in that case, there was a scuba diving club or something like of that nature, right? Once you do that, you're opening a forum of a type. And so the school has to recognize these. And, you know, there are no establishment clause problems because students will understand that these clubs are not the religious clubs that are are operating alongside the scuba diving club and the um, chess club are not sponsored by the school the court expressed an intent to protect the free exercise rights of students in that case now and I think in some ways it does, but we've also seen that case and, and abused the, the, the rules that were set out there. For example, today, a lot of schools have what's called a Fellowship of Christian Athletes Club. And there are various issues with that, that club. First of all, it's usually sponsored by an outside group. And then they claim that its students are running it as a school club. But in fact, outside adults are very heavily involved, which is somewhat prohibited by the Equal Access Act. And the club often gains a lot of influence in the school. And sometimes students have been forced into, you know, FCA run assemblies and things of that nature. And so 
you know, the Mergen's case is an example of a case that I think has been exploited to, it was intended to protect students who exercise rights, but it has been exploited to infringe on the, on the religious freedom rights of other students, you know, minority faith students, atheist students who don't want to be subjected to the FCA during school events and, 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 and things of that nature. Did you also mention the Good News Club or am I jumping the gun? I didn't specifically mention it, but talk, oh, talk about it, please. Um, yeah. Let us so, know how that differs and is similar to Morgan's. Right. So the Good News Club, it wasn't involving a statute like the Equal Access Act. It was involving a constitutional issue. But it's a little bit different because in that case, in Mergen's, you're dealing with students ostensibly. If you're not, if, if we're not having an FCA type situation, you're dealing with students who want to form a student club and operate on the school campus under the same terms that any you know, the chess club can operate and the scuba diving club can operate. In Good News Club, you're actually dealing with a community group that wants to use the school space after school hours to meet. And in this case, they want to meet with children who attend the school. And so it's a little bit different because you're involving an outside group. And the court there said, as long as the school allows a category of outside groups to use these school premises, the Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts, there could there's a community volunteer group, I forget the name of them now, the Kiwanis Club, I think, or something like that. These, you know, these, these groups often will rent out or reserve schools, facility space for the evenings or the weekends or whatever it may be to have meetings. And the Good News Club wanted to do that right after school. And the court said, you can't deny them the right to do that because of their religious perspective. And so in that case, you're dealing with sort of non-students rights to use school facilities. In Mergen, you're dealing with students' rights to use school facilities. Now, again, Good News Club is another example of, I think, you know, the court was looking to protect the free exercise and free speech, you know, sort of rights, and they don't want any viewpoint discrimination, right, of the operators of the Good News Club. But that has, you know, too been exploited to impose religion on very young students. In that case, you were dealing with you know, elementary school students. So they have to coordinate with the school to ensure that the students can stay after school to, and have permission to um, attend this meeting in the cafeteria or wherever they're holding it in the library. And some schools have allowed the Good News Club to promote um, their events over school announcements, even though it's not officially a school club and it's operated by an outside group. So the, again, that ruling has resulted in some students being pressured into joining the club or being exposed to these religious proselytizing in a way that they shouldn't be. So I hear you talking about with Good News Club, both the endorsement and the coercion that comes out of it and that you sometimes have what seems like the school maybe starts to endorse programs by putting them over the loudspeaker and then also coercion where you have these young students who are going after school. But something that's been nagging me is with endorsement and coercion, is it that like that has to be taking place or that any person could walk by and say, I think that looks like the school's making them do that. How does that work between perceived and actual endorsement or coercion? Right. Well, let me preface this by saying, if you listen to the Supreme Court's most recent arguments in Kennedy, some justices think that the endorsement test and the lemon test, which is its sister test, are no longer in existence or... <laughs> are, you know, I think the, the word I use, quote unquote, dead, but it's not that, it's just not that any random person would have to walk by 
um, and say, oh, I think they're endorsing it, right? It's it, the, the standard is a reasonable observer. Now, then there's like, okay, what do you mean by that? Is that a reasonable 12-year-old or eight-year-old? Or is that a reasonable adult? In my view, in the ACLU's view, the one that we've, the, the reasonable observer test we've advocated for is the audience, which in our view, the Supreme Court says in Good News Club, the audience is the parents who are going to sign the permission slip. Our argument in that case, it wasn't our case that so we just submit, submit an amicus brief, was that actually the, the um, audience are the elementary school students. And so you have to look at it from what a reasonable elementary school student, how they would perceive that and whether or not they would perceive it both as a school endorsement or, and whether or not they would feel coerced or pressured um, into participating in these meetings. Another, like, so just to give you an example, if you were a nine-year-old and your friends were all heading um, after school, or sometimes these are even pre before, but if they're heading after school into the, the news club meeting and there's music and there's pizza and all of this stuff and all, your friends are all going and the school's maybe announcing the meeting, you know, don't forget after school, there's this, even though they're not supposed to do that. You can see how an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old might feel pressure to attend that meeting. So of course, it always depends on the particular facts of the case, especially when you're dealing with religion classes, but you're looking at it from the um, perspective of an objective observer and how, who that objective observer is depends on who's um, writing the opinion, essentially, when it comes to the Supreme Court. And in, in, in Santa Fe, the majority opinion was looking at the reasonable observer as a student, a high school student. So, you know, just depends. And so we have the endorsement, of course, in the Lemon Test. Why is the court saying we're going to do away with using endorsement or the lemon test as a basis for making our decisions. And why is it about coercion? I feel like coercion would make it easier to say that these religious prayers or religious clubs are not allowed to take part in the school. But why are some justices using the coercion test, especially if they want an outcome that might lead to allowing these clubs and prayers to take place? Well, you know, it, it also depends what you mean when you say coercion, like when I was talking about coercion, I'm talking about what has been accepted as, as an understanding as by the court itself as coercion, both indirect, quote, unquote, subtle coercion, and direct coercion. So there's the type of coercion that where your teacher says, you will pray with me or you'll fail or whatever it is, right, which doesn't happen very often. Or there's the indirect coercion where, you know, the teacher um, is praying and you feel extreme pressure to pray because you don't want to risk your grade. You don't, in the football coach example, do you want to risk your playing time? Do you want to disappoint your coach? No, you don't. So there's that type of coercion. And of course, then the coercion that also occurs when all of your peers are doing this, the thing that the authority figures are doing. So some of the justices may not have that expansive view of a coercion. Of that ex their, their view of a coercion may not be so expansive. And so they may think, well, if we're just limited to coercion, that's going to allow for a lot more things that we think should be allowed to happen, right? In terms of the endorsement and the lemon test, a lot, the, a lot of the justices think, I mean, this, they don't use this term, but this sort of too wishy-washy and too malleable. I actually think that those tests get at a lot of things that coercion doesn't. And it's, and, you know, there's still a problem, I think, even if you assume no coercion, if you think about a high school student, it's hard to separate these in the school context in particular. But if you think about a student who's school is promoting a, a Christian activity that's going to happen on the weekend, a Christian festival, let's say, right? But they're not promoting any other festivals. They're not promoting, you know, the Jewish festival or whatever. You can see where a minority faith student, even if they're, there's, 
not necessarily coercion for them to attend that festival on the weekend, but where they sort of feel like, oh, my school officials really prefer this faith to my own faith. And, and you, you can see how that can be very alienating to them. So, you know, coercion might not get that type of situation, but it's still in the public school context where you're serving students of all faiths, you're serving non-believer students, you're you know, you really want to be very careful to remain religiously neutral because of the message it sends to the students. Those tests in the school context in particular get at those situations where coercion might not always get at them. So I think it's really short-sighted of the court if they do end up at some point overruling Lemon formally um, or the endorsement tests. I think that will be really short-sighted, especially in the school context. And it will allow schools to impose religion on students in many more situations and in ways that may seem more subtle, but that actually are very corrosive to a minority faith student who's faced with that every day. My hypotheticals won't be good. So I want you to tell me, what do you think are the next big like emerging religious establishment issues in school? What's going to come up next? And where's the conflict line going to be? Because I know we currently have obviously Kennedy versus Bremerton, but what are the next cases in five or 10 years that might come to the court where we see this conflict at schools? Well, I think one of the areas we're going to see is, and this has been percolating below the surface for years now, and it's kind of a bit related to these Mergens and even Good News Club, where you're talking about a limited public forum. But there have been various states across the country that have passed or tried to pass these laws called Religious Viewpoint Anti-Discrimination Acts. I don't know if you've heard about them, but what they purport to do is they're claiming to be protecting the free exercise rights of students in schools, and they claim to establish or set up a limited public forum at every single school event, at the football game, at the school day, the mid, you know, the midday assembly at school. They're saying this is a limited public forum, and so when a student gets up to speak, they can say whatever they want, including proselytizing or prayer, because it's a limited public forum, and so. It's, you know, it will be understood in this school context as private speech. And the point of this is really to allow students to impose on their peers prayer or proselytizing during school events and trying to characterize it as private speech. And I think that that's going to come up. It's already come up in one situation in the graduation context where most courts that rule on the issue have been clear that in the Supreme Court, of course, as you know, Levy Wiseman, graduation prayer not permitted as a general matter, right? In that case, they invited a rabbi to give a prayer. But there's at least one case in the 11th Circuit, Adler v. Duval County School District, where the school kind of set up this, they basically said like, you can get up and say whatever you want. And the student got up and gave a prayer. And so then this court held upheld that as being fine because the school had set it up. So whoever was selected basically could get up and say whatever they wanted within the greeting realm. And so if they gave a prayer, that's not attributable to the school. That's not coercive because it's not attributable to the school and therefore it's permitted. And so that is probably going to come up. That was in a very limited context, but because some states have passed these laws, I think that that's probably going to come up to the Supreme Court at a certain time point. And that, you know, the question is going to be, can states manipulate sort of limited public forum or forum doctrine, which is a free speech concept, Right. Can they manipulate it by purporting to set up forums in schools and allowing students to subject their classmates to prayer or other proselytizing during school events? You know, these students will have the microphone, literally. And, you know, if you're in, a, in school assembly, they might give a prayer or do whatever. And that the court's going to have to rule 
um, on whether or not that's, the court will end up, I think, ruling on whether or not that's permissible. That's probably one of the things that's gonna come up. I think after Kennedy, we're also gonna see, well, we'll see how the court rules in Kennedy. But if the court rules in favor of the coach, public school football coach in Kennedy and says, yeah, he can give these prayers at the 50 yard line immediately after games while he's on duty. I think we're going to see a lot more, many more efforts to push the boundaries on the issue of teacher or school staff speech. We're going to see efforts to increase the ways in which school staff may participate in religious exercise with students or impose it on students. So that's going to come up, I think, as well in the next five to 10 years, even even to an even greater extent than what we're seeing in Kennedy. I want to ask you about something that came up at my school, and maybe this is really nothing, but it was kind of interesting to me. I'm in our student leadership, and a while back, we did this thing where for the winter holidays, or maybe Valentine's Day, we sold candy canes to students and told them, give this to like a friend or write a note to your friend with this candy cane on it. And then we had this other student who's also active in student government that said, I want to run a dreidel activity during school. And our leadership person that runs it was said, no, you can't do this. We can't run a religiously affiliated activity Mm -hmm. at school. So then she said, well, that's, I don't like that, but I'm going to go do it on my own with my friends and we'll do it and it won't you don't have to endorse it or like promote it but then this school ends up like writing emails about it because they always like promote everything students do so then you get this weird conflict and then she was also like well why are you selling candy canes isn't that part of christmas and christianity but then you won't let me do my dreidel activity with the school endorsing it so that felt like a religious conflict almost where the school didn't want to endorse religious activity but then found itself where it kind of already kind of it just happens that you know they were doing that with I don't know if candy canes counts but what's that issue well I'm not sure what the dreidel activity was but I think part of the problem here stems from the fact that the courts have said that the government's recognition of certain types of Christmas related celebrations is not promoting religion basically there are secular ways to recognize Christmas and are religious ways. A nativity scene, you know, uh, would maybe be religious depending on what's around it, but standing alone would be religious, but a snowman and a Christmas tree and a candy cane, you know, are not. I don't think that that's, I think that's a little, that line of case law is, is, is disingenuous I, in, in many ways. I think it's actually offensive to some Christians to say these are non-religious recognitions of the holiday. And, and so that's part of the problem. So you say, okay, well, we're gonna allow candy canes to be distributed. And that's not religious because it's a secular celebration of Christmas, right? And so then when you get to the dreidel piece of it, you're saying, well, maybe that's, that's not as accepted as a secular celebration of Hanukkah. And I, I don't think that's fair. And I actually, in this situation, I mean, I need to know, I need to know more details, but I think probably the school could have allowed students to run their, their own dreidel activity, whatever that involves, as well as the candy cane activity. I mean, there have been situations where there was a, this isn't quite the same, but there was a student in Texas, I think, who wanted to hand, personally hand out candy canes with the message, a message, a religious message about how the red stood for the blood of Jesus and the white something else. I forget exactly. And the school said, you can't do that, but yet other students could hand out different 
things at Christmas time with different messages and the school allowed that. And we actually filed a brief and support us at Amicus Reef in that case and supported the students right to hand out his religious messages. That's not quite the same thing that you're asking about here. It sounds like the candy cane situation was a school sponsored and school approved activity. Yeah, they were both going to be school sponsored kind of and approved yeah. because it's through our leadership and coordinators and they didn't want to do the dreidel one through the school. Yeah. Yeah. Because they yeah. said that's a problem. I mean, I think probably actually under a current case law that wouldn't have been a problem. They're doing the candy cane thing, they're doing the dreidel thing, maybe they did some sort of Diwali thing, maybe they did. I mean, I, I you know, it, it would it would depend on the, the details, but I don't think that would have been a problem under the current case law. Keeping in mind that I don't know if you know what the the dreidel activity was, but it, it seems like it wouldn't be a problem. Okay, that's interesting. Sorry to like totally pull you away. I just thought that no, was thing that's like super relevant. And it even comes up interestingly, you know, in these contexts where we're trying to be very, like our school tries to be like very equitable and make sure that like you're treating every student, every religion the same, but you have these, this undercurrents of like our school Christianity is so widespread that, you know, candy canes is, seems like just another piece of candy to a lot of students, but it is kind of in a way associated with Christmas. And so it was just interesting to see that come up in, and I'm in California in the Bay Area, but that same issue still, still arise, although maybe in a different context. Well, when you're considering sort of the majority faith traditions to have become secularized, you then um, in some ways, at least you're putting the minority faith students at a disadvantage automatically, right? Because their practices aren't as widespread and so are not going to become, and I'm, I say secularized, that's how the courts have, have described it. I'm not saying that they actually are secularized or not, but they're not going to be secularized in the eyes of the court. And so minority faith students are at a disadvantage at that point. And, you know, and, and it's not fair. And I will say that to the extent that there have been free, I've been working in this area for more than 15 years. And the, to the extent that there are free exercise um, infringements or limitations, it's almost always involving a minority faith student rather than the majority faith student like the example of the student who wanted to hand out the candy canes those are those are rare examples um, where the majority faith student is is denied um, their right to exercise their faith so i'll ask you a broad closing question but why is it important for students especially there's a lot of students that i know that are just atheist or choose not to really associate themselves with religion. And we see that like, even in the United States, religion is just less popular than it was. But why is it still important to care about how religious establishment and free exercise play out at school? Well, you're right in that non-religious, just as a general matter, the non-religious population, or sometimes they call them unchurched or unaffiliated, is growing in this country. And there's a significant discrimination against um, them, especially people who are sort of more vocally atheists. So people who aren't religious or are atheist students in particular should care because at least when it comes to the separation of church and state in their schools, they're more likely to have religion imposed on them that they don't believe in. They're more likely to be discriminated against. There actually was a study very recently where these university researchers sent emails to a variety of public schools inquiring about children transferring there. They were per- pretending to be parents or something like that. And in the emails, they had different indicators of what their religion, their faith might be, and also the intensity of their beliefs. And what the study showed, and this was a a study across the country, was that Muslim and atheist families in particular were 
discriminated against. They were unlikely to receive a response. They were sort of blown off more. And that's just, you know, that's a more of a controlled study that shows how public schools can discriminate against students of minority faiths and, and families with atheist beliefs. But on a day-to-day level, it, you know, maybe some students don't care about having religion imposed on them, but many atheist students do. And in fact, I represented a number of atheist students who have had prayer imposed on them at school, who have been required to read the Bible as punishment and write out Bible verses, who have been, you know, harassed by their own teachers and their peers because of their beliefs. And of course, the same goes for many minority faith students. And so just as a matter of your own self-interest, if you're an atheist student or somebody who's not particularly religious, you should care about these issues. You should also care about the free exercise rights of, I think, even religious students, even if you don't want to, you don't have any plans to exercise your faith in school, because just the ability to, of minority faiths and of people of faith to practice their faith, their religion, free from the government's interference is tied into the establishment clause, right? These are complementary ideals. And so if you don't have um, both of them, you don't really truly have religious freedom in this country. And if you don't have religious freedom in this country, or at least in the public school context, then you as a student, whatever your beliefs are, you don't have it either. So I think that that's the reason for students to care, even if they're um, not particularly religious or if they're atheists. I think it's, it's important that they understand how these rights interact and how, you know, denial of rights for some actually is a denial of a right for everybody. I just spoke with Heather Weaver of the ACLU about the separation of church and state at school and how we protect students' free exercise rights. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Heather Weaver, a senior staff attorney at the ACLU. As Heather articulated, questions about religious free exercise related to students are pretty clear. Students should be able to express their religion in schools. But when it comes to establishment of religion and how an outsider, a student, or a parent would view the intermingling of religion in schools, things become way more complicated. But peace out to religion. Hannah and I will be back soon with an episode about freedom of the press in schools and the autonomy of student-run newspapers. Unless the Supreme Court drops an opinion in one of the two school-religion-related cases this term, and we have to produce an emergency episode. Who knows? But for now, here's what you can do. Leave us a rating, drop us a review, And for more coverage of the Supreme Court by teenagers, check out the High School SCOTUS website at highschoolscotus.com. On the blog, you can read oral argument previews, opinion analysis, and interviews with eminent legal scholars. Everything you need to stay in touch with the court. That's highschoolscotus.com. We can't wait to see you next time. Thank you!